VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, April the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Okay. Good luck and have a great time to everybody participating in the Avalon Celtics 2022 U9 Invitational, the Novice Select Tournament, the marquee event of the minor hockey calendar without question. So anyone who's ever participated, has a player, parent, grandparent, coach, whatever the case may be, you know that this is going to be a lifetime of memories created starting today when the Mount Pearl Novice team kicks off against the CBR at 4 o'clock at the DF Barnes Arena. So there's 10 teams as far afield as corner. The Royals are in town. So they're in two divisions, the Abbey Newhook Division and the Alex Newhook Division. And this will be an opportunity for these young novice players to be treated like professionals. You should see it. If you want to put a smile on your face, because there's a lot of things that are, you know, bringing us down. You want to see some excited young hockey players and their parents and their coaches and supporters, then make your way to the DF Barnes Arena to have a look at this tournament. I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. It's absolutely brilliant. So have a great time to everyone involved. Quick check-in in in, uh, New Brunswick at the Don Johnson Cup. The Mount Pearl Blades, of course, were provincial champions. They opened it up with a win yesterday against the A&S Scrap Metal Metros. They beat them 2-0. Two games today, they play Antigonish at noon, and then they play Kent, Nova Scotia, at 7.30 tonight. So good luck to the Blades. Also, safe travels, good luck to the Sportscraft Eastern Icebreakers. They're representing the province in the female U15 AAA. That happens, well, they're already in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. They kick it off today. Quick softball update. We brought you the news yesterday that Team Canada remained undefeated at 3-love, had to play the Americans last night, beat them 4-2. Jason Hill with the walk-off home run to win it in the bottom of the sixth. Uh, was it a walk-off? No, I'm not sure. He had an home run to win it in the bottom of the sixth. Anyway, and they that was the last preliminary game, and they're the only undefeated team in the tournament. We know that they're celebrating 75 years of organized baseball in the city of St. John's this year, which is pretty cool, and they got lots of really interesting stuff on tap. But here's another good one regarding baseball. It was today in history, uh, 1930, it was the first night game in the history of organized baseball. It took place in Independent, Kansas, five years before the major leagues had their first night game. Fundamentally changed the game, and many people say it saved minor baseball. Now, there had been some exhibition games played under the lights prior. The first one took place September the 2nd of 1880, but today was the first organized game in a league governed by rules. So, night baseball, pretty good stuff. All right, da, 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 da. oh, the <laughs> this one is a bit more funny than anything else. So, we know various nations have iconic animals that they refer to, you know, and in Canada, the beaver, the moose, and others. It was 18 years ago today that one of the famous fugitives in New, New Zealand was captured. Shrek the sheep, a resident merino, which is a, ca- a castrated adult male sheep, a wether, from Bendingo Station, New Zealand, had been on the lamb for some six years of aiding capture, and like many famous criminals, ducked into some caves to avoid the roundup, had to make it through all those cold winters. So when finally captured, the Shrek was 59 pounds worth of fleece. It took some 15 minutes to shear the animal. So if you've ever seen a video of these world-class shearers, it happens very quickly. 15 minutes to shear Shrek. They brought in Peter Casserly, a former World Blade shearing champion, 
Remove the fleece on camera. It was enough fleece to make 20 men's suits. Shrek the sheep, an icon in New Zealand, apparently. Okay, captioned in 2004. So tax filing deadline, nobody likes to talk about taxes. Tax filing deadline comes up on Monday, May 2nd. There are a lot of really frustrated Canadians regarding the fact that they got some pandemic supports, even if they didn't want them, and now being forced to have the tax implications as part of this year's filing. Some people who were simply trying to file for employment insurance, they were automatically put on the CERB. Then there were some folks who received the CERB support after they were so-called technically eligible. And as a result, they even sent a letter, a note from CRA saying, the maximum amount you should have received is $500 per week during the period you were eligible for CERB. According to the information we have on file, including your reporting information, you were paid more benefits than the amount you were eligible. You will soon receive a notice of debt by mail detailing what you owe and providing instructions on how to make payments if necessary. There was a lot of problems with the lack of oversight, even though time was of the essence and the federal government wanted to get money out the door. Now the implication on individuals is very, very, very real. Some people who remain on employment insurance and having to receive this notice of debt and unable to pay said debt, now you can probably work out a payment schedule, payment plan with CRA, but I've got dozens of people who are sending me very, very frustrated emails about this, the, where they find themselves and the predicament that they're in financially. So you want to take it on? Let's talk about it today. This story is curious as much as it is extremely frustrating. So there's been two, in, two airports in the country that have been fined thousands of dollars in damages for official language rights violations. So a judge, Sebastian Gramont, took the St. John's International and Edmonton Airport to task for adopting a narrow interpretation of the official language obligations. So to translate their web pages, their slogans, social media posts, any reports. So this is how it gets a little bit frustrating, I think. A fellow who made the complaints his name is Michael or Michelle Thibodeau. It's okay to complain. I mean, the rules are in place. You know, official language is something that's well understood, and maybe the airport should have known better. But Mr. Thibodeau, an Ottawa resident, he had never ever seen or been in either one of those airports. It was based on his internet research where he filed these complaints. Now, he's what might be called a serial complainant. He has filed over 500 official language complaints over the years. 500, all from his own home, all based on his research. When I first saw the headline, I thought immediately about, I remember years ago when there was a complaint made to the Human Rights Commission and the Official Languages Office that the, the service of drinks on an Air Canada flight was not being offered in both languages. And so this fellow, someone made a complaint. Turns out it was this guy. So, I mean, come on. And here's where it gets, I think, just a bit much. So it's one thing for the airports to be taken to task to ensure that they're in line with the official languages legislation. Okay. Mr. Thibodeau receives $5,000 in damages. He's never even been in the airports. $5,000 in damages and $6,000 in costs from St. John's International. He also receives $5,000 in damages and $3,900 in costs from the Edmonton Regional Airport Authority. When they push back, they say, you know, he's a serial complainant. He's trying to commodify his language rights for profits. So between March the 17th and January 2019, Thibodeau made 253 complaints to the Official Languages Commissioner. Prior to that, he's made 500 complaints in total in the last five years, received tens of thousands of dollars 
in damages in the last decade. So he says he's an ardent supporter of the French language and to ensure that the official languages is followed to the letter of the law. But just imagine, I mean, I feel like calling, is he a stickler, is he a nuisance, or is he doing what he thinks is right, an ardent supporter of the French language in the country? But just imagine, never been in the airports, didn't affect him, sitting down in front of his computer where there's a lot of big, strange stuff that's happened in the last number of years, and he's received tens of thousands of dollars in damages. Anyway, what do you make of that? I guess the airport should know better, but boy, oh boy. All right, let's look at some uh, census numbers here in the province. And since, well, let's see here. The 2021 census puts Newfoundland and Labrador's population at 510,550 people, a decrease of 9,000 since the previous census 2016. The population uh, change is 1.8% decrease. Only province in the country is Newfoundland and Labrador to see a decrease in overall population. The Northwest Territories, the only one to see uh, a decrease in population amongst the territories. Here's where the numbers get curious. And look, population numbers are important for a variety of reasons. 22% of Atlantic Canadians are 65 years of age or older. That compares about 15% of the people of the rest of the country. By 2043, which sounds like a long ways away, but it's not really, 2040, by then, 2043, this province, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, will be the home of the highest proportion of seniors aged 85 and older. They, they're going to make up some 6% of the population. By comparison, people aged 85 and older currently make up 2.3% of the entire Canadian population versus what is the forecast of making it up, upwards of 6%. This province is the country's oldest and most rapidly aging population. Uh, the number of adults aged 65 and older jumped from 19.4% to 23.6% in 2021. Now, there is nothing wrong with being a senior citizen. I hope one day to be one. The numbers are important in an effort to prepare, to plan, because it does require an additional layer of thought and pre-planning to make sure that we're well positioned to deal with seniors related matters in increased numbers in the years to come. Whether it be with preparation of long-term care facilities, whether it be in preparation for what some of the chronic illnesses associated with your aging population, what it might be, and to be prepared. So this, you know, every time we say aging population, some people really get their back up and think that we're decrying it to be a problem. No, but numbers are important so that we know where we are, we know where we're heading, and what we have to do to prepare. So long-term care versus more plans to age at home and the supports required for. So again, the numbers are important simply for information. We cannot, I mean, the worst possible case scenario would be is government hearing these numbers, seeing these numbers, wrapping their minds around what it means and not doing anything about it because we know what happens. Chaos, increased cost, and more and more people left to struggle or suffer on their own when government needs to do its job and prepare for next year, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. We seem to have the politics really be the victim of a four-year cycle. The long-term visions and planning and policies and real roadmaps to knowing where the province is heading, whether it be about the aging demographic, whether it be about the types of industries that will be viable and prosperous and accessible. So all of these things have to be taken into account. So it would be really great to, and I know you hear some references to 2030 and 2045 and some of those things, but especially when we're talking about a healthcare system that's already teetering on the brink. It might be a crisis in your world. I get it. But all of those things in conjunction are going to make for some very difficult work for the government to make sure that we are where we need to be 
as it pertains to some of these population-based numbers and forecasts. What do you think? And on that front, the two long-term care homes in Central are going to be delayed for full opening for admissions another two to three weeks. There's unresolved problems with water systems and flooring in the showers. Remember when we first found out that there was upwards of 4,000 deficiencies initially identified. All kinds of serious safety ones, accessibility, ventilation. So it's extremely frustrating. But what also has to follow here is that there are people who are in the hospital today. They're medically able to be discharged, but they're waiting for a placement in a long-term care home. Through no fault of their own, and the incompetence of whether it be contractors, inspectors, or government, they're paying, I think it's like almost $40 a day to stay in the bed. So that adds up after a while. There are some people who have been in there months waiting, and now in an additional two to three weeks, that bill, and it's not their fault, is going to be a whopping big number for them or their families to have to pay off. So maybe, given the fact that this is not their problem, it's not their doing, we should probably look at waiving those fees for at least the next couple or three weeks so these people can get placed in the bed that is apparently awaiting them in one of the long-term care homes. Okay, and you talk about industries of the future, where the opportunities lie. And the oil industry, you know, Bader Nord being approved and Terra Nova coming back into production in the fall of this year. There is apparently a decision coming the next few weeks from Synovus regarding the West White Rose extension. Some of it's a $3.2 billion project. You know, it's going to be connected to the existing FPSO, the Sea Rose. When the federal government put forward a pot of money to help support industry, not individuals, companies, some monies did indeed go towards this West White Rose extension and the work being done in Argentia in particular. Now, there's a lot of the components or the modules being built in Texas. Some of the smaller ones have indeed been built in Marystown. But we'll see what this means. The extension of the project would be ramp up of about 2026, the peak of about $45,000 per day in the late 2020s. An additional lifespan of 14 years, maybe a couple hundred million barrels of oil. So we'll see what they think on that front. And, of course, we have skin in the game. Now, Alcor has a 5% equity stake. Synovus is, of course, the dominant ownership percentage at 69. They also have partners at uh, Suncor, who was 26%. But we'll see what that brings. How are we doing out there, David? <laughs> oh, someone wanted me to throw out regarding federal things. I got a call. Larry got a call. Many of you got a call. It's just an automated voice, a robot, that says that your social insurance number has been compromised. This has been widely understood to be a scam, so don't follow through if you're worried that something has happened. Maybe you think that it's associated with a cyber attack on the Meditech system here. Hang up. Make a call on your own accord to verify whether or not it's actually real. But for most if not all it's a scam so just watch yourself all right uh let's talk about teens in the workforce you know we went from seniors let's go to teens these are also associated with the most recent numbers and teen participation rate in the workforce is way down nowhere near where it used to be now the unemployment rate nationally is 5.3 percent there's over 915,000 vacant jobs in the fourth quarter of 2021 in 2021, in September, there was over a million vacancies. So we know a lot of it might be in food service and retail. And we can extend the conversation into what kind of jobs they are. And for many, they can be quite enjoyable and prosperous jobs. But in some businesses or companies, maybe not so much. And people will always talk about the rate of pay. But the participation rate is, is a really interesting to look at. 
It's been declining for decades, and Stats Canada first started gathering to this data in, back in 1976. Team labor participation peaked in 1989 at just over 59%. In two, two, uh, pardon me, 2008, it was at 56.5%. Uh, hovered around 50% for the next couple of years, and now in 2022, it's all the way down to 50.7%. So 9% is a significant drop-off. There's going to be a variety of reasons why. But team participation is not what it once was, and I guess there will be a variety of reasons. And if you're a team listening to the program this morning and would like to offer your thoughts, please do. Okay. For information purposes only, Kevin. The province reported five additional deaths, COVID-related deaths, yesterday. It's been a deadly month no doubt about it 17 people in the hospital five in critical care so that's 17 is down from 24 on monday we wish them all a speedy recovery and our condolences to those who have lost a loved one so you know minister haggy says some of these numbers makes it feel and look like the worst of the omicron wave is behind us i don't know what that means i don't know if that's real we know that hospitalization numbers lag a couple three weeks behind case count and case count is an arbitrary number at this point given the change in, in testing protocols so if you want to tackle it from those angles you know what to do and also the minister said yesterday that Paxlovid, the oral antiviral treatment, is being delivered to community pharmacies. As soon as the news story was put online, the Pharmacists Association Newfoundland Labrador panel said, nope, <laughs> it's not. So the, the confusion reigns supreme on many of these conversations. And interestingly, you know, talk about testing, rapid antigen tests or the PCR tests and access to either. Now there's been a, a breathalyzer type thing developed to test for the virus very much akin to blowing the breathalyzer to test for whether or not you're under the influence as you drive so apparently that might be coming and i don't know what it means to us but anyway today's also the national day morning for workers injured or killed on the job there's a variety of events taking place today there's one such walk uh, it's happening on sunday may the first between seven and nine uh it's the steps for life walking event we can get some information if you're so inclined. There's some events happening in the Fluvarium today, up in Labrador as well. So the National Day morning for workers injured or killed on the job. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Her email address is openlineofvocm.com. But let's get a tune on the go before we come back and we speak with you. Today in 1979 on the album charts, landing in the top ten for the very first time, it was Supertramp's landmark Breakfast in America. This is the logical song. When we come back, see if we keep some more logic going. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Got a note from a U9 hockey coach out in Central. Apparently, the Central Newfoundland U9 Select Tournament was held on April 15th to the 16th out at the Joe Byrne in Grand Falls, Windsor. So, and they report having a terrific time, excited kids, great stuff. Gander played Twillingate Fogo in the championship. Gander comes up uh, on top 6-5. And I'm glad that was a, a successful event as well. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Yeah, no, I just wanted to let you know that I was shopping there a couple of hours ago down to Walmart down in Stavanger, uh, and there was a Lynx on the parking lot. Cool. So, just one of the traditioners, though. Absolutely. So, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, I've seen the Lynx in that area before, too, on the golf course, which is just below. Of course, you can see it when you go behind the Walmart there. So, look out for the Lynx. Any size to it? Uh, pardon? Was it big? 
all huge, huge. Is that right? Yeah, just your stereo, and then took off back in the woods, right? Well, that's the right spot for it. So I appreciate the oh, heads yes, up, though. I wouldn't, want a corner. I wouldn't want a corner, I don't think. No, neither would I. Uh, you've got to watch yourself with wild animals anyway. You know, oh, I've well, seen. You got the right skills. Someone sent me a video yesterday of someone uh, scratching the head of a fox up on Signal Hill, which I thought was uh, maybe a brave or a stupid thing to do. Yeah, I don't know which one. No, there's something wrong with people like that, I think. <laughs> I appreciate the heads up, Kevin. Thanks a lot. No problem, buddy. Okay. All the best. Bye-bye. Giant links, Walmart's the banger. Look out. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, Patty, you certainly got to watch yourself and watch your pets around at links like that. Absolutely. Uh, Patty, uh, before I get into the topic of aging and, and the aging population, uh, you mentioned something that I caught the tail end of uh, when you were coming into your program about the Alex and Abby Newhook tournament or division yeah that's the uh, yeah. the avalon celtics 2022 u9 uh, select tournament so there's 10 teams uh, one coming all the way from cornerbrook the the legendary royals and so in the 10 yeah. teams they broke down into two divisions one is the abby newhook division one is the alex newhook division of course two graduate celtic greats yeah, yeah, for doing the great ambassadors for the province. Oh, yeah. It takes a lot to get where they are in their, in their sports. Um, Patty, uh, it, it, it triggered, I guess, is probably not the great word to use nowadays, but you certainly rang a bell or woke me up when you were uh, talking about the aging population because I'm very fortunate to be one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, made it that far, I can safely say it. Uh, Patty, there's a section or a sector in that population that doesn't get spoken about much, and uh, that's that uh, group of the population uh, that while they're aging, uh, they uh, either must or they choose to continue to work. Uh, workforce participation by older workers, I'll call it that. And uh, there's not a whole, there's not statistics around breaking down as to just the numbers as to what's going to be. I mean, we have a, a we're supposed to have a shortage of employees, you know, people going to work. We're supposed to have a surplus of jobs. But there's many people out there, uh, 15 and above, who either been downsized or perhaps their, their occupations are no longer relevant, you know, they don't fit in into a world, particularly women, those in that old, uh, older group, uh, they were uh, they were smaller earners. They did a lot of the administrative work, those that came through in the 60s and 70s and 80s, that type of thing. And uh, I, I guess there's a big concern as to where they're going to fit or if they're going to fit in the workforce. Right now in workforce participation for older workers, many of them are automatically dropped. Their benefit packages are dropped. For example, when I reached age 65, I, uh, my uh, benefit for short and long-term disability was dropped, just based on age, not based on anything else, just my age. A little later on, I lost medical, dental, vision uh, coverage because my age again was dropped off, even though I, wanted, I wouldn't mind paying higher rates for it, but it happened. So uh, there's a, I think there's a large part of our population that are going to be dependent on taxpayers to fa- pay for them when they could and should, I guess, be working. But there's, there's a big rush to push us into the seniors' homes, you know. There's a big, big rush to, to keep uh, Nanapop comfy and cozy when Nanapop really would rather be working. 
people reach out to me. I don't know if this is an official or organized group, but Experienced Workers NL. And I get some notes from them, and I see them on my Twitter feed sometimes. And it's a fair point to make. What becomes very difficult is an individual's experience in trying to rejoin or participate continually in the workforce. It's hard to break down just where the barriers are or the mindset of those who might or may not hire a senior because of whatever reason, whether they think that they, it's uh, too costly to retrain in the new so-called new ways of doing business, or there might be some medical concerns that makes them less than reliable than a young person. And I'm just throwing these out there. I don't know what the rationale will be, but how do you get a workforce-wide understanding of exactly why experienced workers, aging workers, are unable to find meaningful employment? But your okay. thoughts? I, 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 I guess I should clarify. I chair experienced workers. Oh, I, I thought so. Them. But yeah, I get some, yeah. I get some uh, yeah. info from yeah. people involved. Well, on Twitter, yeah, we, we do that stuff. And it's been on the go for about three to four years. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work. We started out as seniors' work. Nobody wanted to be seniors anymore because their perception was down and popped down on the wharf or whatever, you know. Uh, so we changed it to older workers, Newfoundland and Labrador. And I'll be darned if nobody wants to be old anymore because it's a bad bad image or such a you know that we're uh, somehow weak and uh, and dependent on others and everything to get along so after all of that it came down to experienced older workers and that's where it is now so that's a really a volunteer group that's been focusing on this for the last three years and and has participated you know with groups like the board of trade and and with the seniors advocates office and done a, you know done a, a number of partnership pro- programs and things like that But the big issue out there uh, is uh, it's a very quiet elephant in the room and that uh, a lot of people, the perception is, you know, the sold and I don't want to slag any insurance company, but it's Freedom 55. So a lot of the workers who need to work and are quite capable of working have spent pretty well a lot, large part of their lives right now as providers. They were key providers. They put the kids through school. They paid bills. They did it every day. And all of a sudden, they've been downsized or their jobs don't exist anymore. And they've been the ones who've been leading it. They don't know or feel embarrassed to ask for help. If you look into the um, into the education network or into any kind of support networks, there's absolutely, and I can say this, I've researched this till the cows came home, there's nothing out there focusing on retraining or upskilling or anything for older workers. It's all up to 19, up to 29. Now, that's okay. I, I, I got no, this is not a we-they situation, Patty. But it's not out there. There's, there's really no focus. And uh, I recall sitting down in the office of a politician one day and talking about, you know, there's a whole section, whole group out there. And, and, and thanks be to God for places like the gathering place. But you go down any day, I would think, and take a look at who's there. You know, these are older people that have really nowhere else to go to be able to get their food, and they could be gainfully employed. But, Patty, there's nothing out there to give up for that. You talk to government. The guy said to me, this this guy in government said to me, he said, oh, if I talk about this, you know, I'll be slagged by, you know, social media and everything else. I'm supposed to be focused on immigrants, and I'm supposed to be focused on refugees, and I'm supposed to be focused on young people. We can't talk about older people. That's a bizarre thing to say, uh, whoever that politician may be, even though I think I have an inkling. I mean, you can split focus. If we have people that, you know, can't see different angles and focus on different files concurrently, then that's a problem in and of itself. This is an honest question now, Mike. So you talk about retraining opportunities. 
Yep. How would a retraining opportunity look different for a senior than, say, for instance, someone who simply wants to move from one industry or, or another? You know, say, for instance, I'm working in the oil industry and I'm, you know, I'm worried about the long-term viability, so I think maybe something's better for me out there long-term security. How does that person get different retraining than a senior who might need or want I- you know what, Patty? I don't have the skill set to be able to answer that question to you. It's such a good question. But there are people out there who do. So when we spoke to people like the College of the North Atlantic and Memorial and other private institutes and things like that, and said, you know what, there's there's upskilling opportunities. We're not stupid. You know, we, we can learn. And, and, and how about developing this? Oh, tell us what you want. We'll build it. And we're saying to them, we don't know. You tell us. You do the research and say, what does this generation, what do these people need? And here's what we think is good for you. Do you agree? Let's let's talk about this and let's put some off and try it. I don't have an answer to such a good question that you do. I know one thing. Patty, I was 72 years old and I got fired. Do you know why I got fired? I got fired. I got hired first. Let me put that. I was investigated by the RCMP for security clearances. I had a number of interviews with uh, HR people. I did computer testing. Everything was good. Six months of it. And I got hired for this job. Not a big, you know, important job. 60 grand a year. 55, 60 grand a year. But it was good money. It was eight or nine weeks of virtual online training, and you couldn't fail less than 75%. Any three of five tests, which were three hours plus long, you couldn't get less than 75 on any three, or you were out. Experience, and I had all kinds of experience, all kinds of kudos in this kind of work. Experience, nothing was considered. It was you had three, you had those tests to do. And it was all online, and there was no skilled teachers. There was a subject matter expert delivering it. I got a 70 in one, a 60 in the other, and they wouldn't let me use paper as a supplement to my learning. Here's what this is. I wanted to say, hey, all my life I've done great on these things, but i got to print off some material because I study differently. I can't look at the screen and I can't absorb what somebody's telling me and look at a manual they're doing. I need paper. i got to have paper to help me along. All my life I've been doing that. Nope, can't do that. Everything has got to be by everything has got to be by computer. So on the third exam, so first one I got seventy, second one I got, second one I got sixty. Third exam comes up, I embarrass them and they force me to sign a, a request for an accommodation. I got a seventy-three, Patty. I missed one question and it was in dispute. Boom, out the door. Now, what what does that tell you? Where have we gone with this that we're so trapped into it's got to be virtual or nothing that this happens? So there's one example. Yeah, I mean, those types of accommodations and flexibility, uh, you know, if we're so hard and fast and stringent with some of those approaches, then we're we're not doing the process or the individual any favor, simply because I have to go very quickly. Mike, I'll give you the last word here yeah. on the topic, and I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, no, no, Patty, it's a wide topic, and it's, uh, it, uh, it's quiet, it's elephant in the room. For anybody sitting out there today, and you're feeling a little bit lost, there are people working for it for you, and and uh, we know where you're coming from. We know what it's about. And, and don't feel any less. Don't feel embarrassed or anything like that, that you're at this stage in your life, and you want and need to work, and you can't find it. 
because there's a lot of people there like you. Yeah, we're just not acknowledged yet, but we will be. Maybe Thank I should. You, Patty. You're welcome. I'll I'm factor sure. that into my thoughts as we talk about these population forecasts or percentages of different age groups, because that was what I was trying to do or accomplish with making all those references off the top, is that when we know what's coming, then we have ample opportunity to plan for, whether that be aging at home or long-term care or pro- programs for dementia or heart disease, and yes, the workforce and what it looks like and opportunities for retraining and employability of seniors in the province. Absolutely happy uh, to blend it into the thoughts that I offer in the morning. Thanks for this, Mike. Yeah, my pleasure. Government, stop talking and start doing. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, very quickly, uh, if you want me to pump the tires on something you got coming up, I can make some very quick uh, quips on your behalf. Tonight, Game two at the Battle of the Sword. High school hockey supremacy between the Holy Heart Highlanders and the Gonzaga Vikings takes place tonight, 7.30 puck drop at the DF Barnes Arena if you're interested in taking that on. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking Muskrat Falls and some salmon watchers. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. <laughs> Welcome back to the program. Oh, man. Thinking and talking and reading and writing all at the same time. Inevitably, I'm going to shag a bunch of stuff up. <laughs> Battle for the Swords came to at the DF Barnes Arena. Don't show up tonight. It was last night. <laughs> Gonzaga won. Pete Oliart to win the series. Thanks, Nicole, for letting me know. Oh, my. Let's go to line number three. Junior, you're on the air. Well, at least you can multitask, Patty, so that's good. Well, <laughs> not when I blow it like that. But anyway, oops. <laughs> Uh, happy Thursday, dear Patty. The same to you. Patty, and I hate to use your program, but, uh, you know, before VOCM, uh, the office closed in Gander, we could get this announcement basically every day, like before the meeting. So I'm just going to announce on your program that on uh, Thursday, May the 5th, the Salmon Watchers Assistance Group will be holding the meeting uh, at the back room of the uh, IBEX Fuels Building, 46 Hardy Avenue. The purpose of the meeting, Patty, is to discuss the opinions on catch and release versus retention angling of our Wall Atlantic salmon. And all types of anglers are encouraged to attend that meeting, Patty. So what exactly goes on here? And what's the role of the, of the group? The role of our group, uh, uh, the Salmon Watchers group, Patty, is to we're trying to ban catch and release. Now, there's 12 other groups out there, and they're not all... Uh, looking to ban catch and release, but we want to ban it because it's not a conservation tool and it's a human pleasure. That's basically what it is. You know, you're torturing a creature just for your own pleasure. And and, and I understand that, Patty, because it is a great pleasure. I mean, uh, you know, salmon fishing, having salmon on, it's a pleasure, and we just hate to give it up. And with our numbers now declining and uh, we're half of our rivers are in the critical zone, we're pretty close to uh, the extinction. The way the salmon is going now, uh, in the 10-year time or whatever, we're sh- pretty close to extinction of that salmon. And our group is against it, uh, Patty, because of those reasons. And, uh, you know, for your listeners out there, uh, in 2003, there was a group on the West Coast, the Bay St. George Stewardship Group, and their rivers were uh, on the endangered species list. And... Uh, DFO, I think we're going to close the rivers down. But it was a group over there that encouraged DFO to just give them a chance and see if they can bring the salmon stocks back. And DFO gave them that chance. And from 2003 to 2016, retention angling only, I think it was two salmon a day maybe, the salmon came back 100% on those rivers. 
And in 2017, the worst year for salmon fishing, DFO opened up those rivers again to catch and release. So they were very disappointed after showing that catch and release was not working. So, Okay, um, so with so few salmon allowed to be retained and angling being such a popular hobby or activity so what are you using for mortality numbers junior for catch and release because can't it be done fairly efficiently and effectively without you know some people just play the salmon far too long anyway for their own amusement as opposed to land it as soon as they can and very quickly as opposed to photo opportunities and having it out of the water too long can't you actually catch and release the salmon uh safely so what are you using for mortality numbers well patty the provincial government just finished a three-year study uh, last year, they just released their uh, report just this year, and uh, what they're saying is that the mortality rate at water temperatures at uh, uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, the mortality rate is very, very low. There's only a 4% mortality rate. As the water temperature goes up, and if it goes up to 16, still not too bad, 17, 18, 19, 20, that mortality rate at 18 degrees, I think, Patty, goes to about 16%. Uh, 19, it just goes more. 20%, we're well up there. 21%, 22%, we're looking at very close to a 70% mortality rate as the temperature goes up. And that's that was their latest release just last month. So what most groups are encouraging now is to ask DFO to stop catch and release at 18 degrees. That makes sense if the mortality numbers change so dramatically with these increases in water temperature. Uh, anything else you wanted to say this morning, Junior, while we have you? No, there was one thing, Patty, and I, I told David I'd like to get in one quick question, and that's on the muskrat falls thing. Will Newfoundland Labrador ever see a profit from muskrat falls? It's a long way down the road. Yeah, but will we ever see a problem? Well, I, I, I think that's an impossible question to answer. But the hydro developments have a really long lifespan, so we're going to be paying the bill for, what is it, 50 or 57 years. So it won't be until then. So it definitely was a boondoggle. Sure. Yes, it was, yeah. Okay, that's, that's, that's what I want to know. How do you have yourself a great day, you and you and David? You too, Junior. Thanks for the call. Okay, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Okay, so... We spoke about some of the statistics, kind of the census numbers, and it wasn't great for us on a variety of fronts, population decline. But important context is that does not include 2021, when the province did see an increase in the population, some 2,200 people, I think, was the number. So the reason I give out the numbers in the way I did this morning is more about preparing for what it looks like, especially the percentage of senior citizens in the province for all the obvious reasons that we discussed. So yes, and the population did increase in 2021 by 2,200 people, just to make sure we get all the numbers out there for accurate context. Let's take a break. When we come back, Nancy Reed, she's the executive director of COD NL, which is the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. She's in the queue, and then Linda wants to talk about a phone scam that's making its roots around the country. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Hi, Linda. Line two. Hi, this is Linda calling. I wanted to report a scam. I had three calls yesterday uh, saying that they were calling from uh, Can Do Revenue and to press one, that my number had been, my social insurance number had been compromised. Mm -hmm. And I called CRA this morning and they told me it's a scam. So I just want people to let, let people know. 
you know, so nobody else would be caught or wouldn't want to see anyone caught in something like that. Well, it's a helpful heads up. Uh, I got the exact same call yesterday afternoon, Linda. And generally now when my landline rings, it's probably a scam. I can't remember the last, well, there's one guy who calls me on the landline every now and then, but other than that, it's either a telemarketer or an absolute scammer. So appreciate the heads up. So folks, Linda's confirmed that that robotic automated call saying your social insurance number has been compromised, don't fall for it, don't do it, it's a scam. That's very helpful, Linda, I appreciate this. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, take care. You too. bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at COD NL. Of course, that's the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, Nancy Reed. Hi, Nancy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good Great morning to, to you. Here today. Um, Patty, if I could take just a few minutes to paint a picture uh, for your listeners this morning. I've experienced something that I really want to share with, uh, with folks in, in, in the province. Um, on budget day, on April 7th, I was invited, um, in, because of my role as the executive director with the coalition, to uh, go to the public gallery to view the budget speech. And um, I took that opportunity uh, this time. Um, I've been invited in the past and never took the opportunity, but this is a year when we had new accessibility legislation and uh, you know some thoughts around inclusion and access and just really was hoping that it was gonna be a good day. So I accepted the, the invitation, and uh, along with my vice chair, uh, we, we attended the event. Um, with the invitation that I received from Minister Cody, uh, finance minister, I because I didn't, uh, in the invitation, receive any, um, I guess, any uh, accommodations or, you know, ask if I needed any type of accessibility accommodations, I sent an email uh, with my response saying that I would be coming to ask if there were um, any protocol, any directions that I would need as a wheelchair user, because I am a wheelchair user, to access the public gallery. And I was given direction uh, and told me that, you know, that, that that would be available for me at that time. So I followed the protocol given. And uh, when we got to the public gallery in the house, I learned very quickly that there were no um, areas of the public gallery available for wheelchairs to be seated in. I saw you there that day. Yes. And I could see what that uh, felt like and what it meant to you. Mm-hmm. And it's just remarkable. You know, we'll have some good work being done in the House of Assembly talking about new legislation regarding disabilities and access and whatnot. And, you know, there's lots of consultation took place there. But then in the people's house, where government business is being attended to, invitations to you to come and then being unable to accommodate your very fundamental needs of access to the public viewing gallery is ridiculous. I mean, so when you came and spoke to me about it, of course, I understood your concerns immediately. Now that you have, I would imagine, that you put the same concerns back into the lap of government, and their reaction is what? Well, uh, I certainly did, and, and I do remember speaking to you on that day. I sent them a letter. I waited a little while, uh, really got my thoughts together, and was sure that I was comfortable in what I was saying. Sent them a letter last week. Um, in fairness, it was sent on Friday, and this is Thursday. Monday was a holiday, uh, but I haven't yet not received any response to that letter. And in that letter, I'd like to, I guess, further um, 
the discussion and say that it's not only barriers for persons with physical mobility disability like myself. Uh, I was afforded a choice to sit at the far end of the gallery, segregated from my peers in a space where nobody else was permitted to sit, where I could see the rest of the gallery, the public gallery. I could see the people watching. I had a partial obstruction to the view of the house from where I was, and I refused to sit there. I wasn't going to sit. I was. I refused to sit segregated from my peers. I won't accept that as, as an accommodation. I need to be enabled to be um, in the same place as my peers, or I don't accept it. We don't, we don't tolerate segregation as a population. We're done. Um, but not only for persons with mobility disability, there was also barriers for people with other disabilities. There was no, um, like I said, there was no invitation of accessibility needs being met. Uh, further to that, if a person were there with uh, hearing impairment, uh, oftentimes we see real-time captioning where there's a screen, and as the words are being spoken, a screen is nearby the speaker or available so that people in the room can read the words that are being said if they have barriers to hearing. Uh, that was not afforded. That was not available. There was no um, sign language interpretation available. I'm not sure that if, if, if anybody had asked for it or not, but it was not available. Those are things that is a standard protocol today we expect to see. So I, I mentioned all of those items in my letter to the to the minister and, and copied it to the you know ministers in that in that area, and uh, and I've heard nothing as of yet. We are in a space where we are not going to tolerate that any longer. I refuse to accept segregation based on disability. And nor should you have to be forced or felt like you have to tolerate something that is so antiquated it's uh, really quite pathetic to be honest and the silence is deafening even if it's not answers people need or want to hear you know some effective timely communication replies mm -hmm. is at least a step in the right direction uh, so I'm sorry that this is happening give the folks some idea about just what percentage of the population would have been in the exact same predicament had they been invited to attend budget day we don't have a firm number. Uh, we know that roughly 25% of our population are persons with disabilities in this province. So, you know, that equates to 500,000 people, roughly about 125,000 people. Now, when I say that, and I say persons with disabilities, I mean from a full cross-disability perspective. Disabilities that are very visible, like mine, to disabilities that are not visible at all to the general public, um, including sensory disabilities, intellectual or cognitive disability, uh, disabilities uh, from mental health uh, illness, and, of course, physical mobility disability. There are, I mean, there, there's a huge portion of our population. We are, in fact, the largest minority of persons in the country. Um, and that number of, of the 25% is really a federal number. It's considered across the board. And, of course, add to that that we in, the, in this province and in the country as a whole are often an aging population. So disability doesn't always come with age, but the longer we live, the more opportunity we have to acquire disability. And certainly, you know, I jokingly say that for most of us, stairs don't get easier after you're five years old. Um, you know, with age comes disability very often. So the number of people who are going to be identifying as persons with disabilities in the coming years is increasing over and over again. Absolutely. Um 
so not to deflect from what is the bad news, but all la- levels of government need to understand this. Corporate Canada needs to understand it. The retail and business community needs to understand because we're talking about a significant numbers of people mm-hmm. that, you know, forget what's the right thing to do. There's also the fiscal upside to making sure that accommodations can be made and so that you expand your the, the numbers of people that you can do business with. Uh, and I hate to boil it down to that, but sometimes that's what the motivation is, is required for certainly in the in the business sector. They need to see that there's some sort of return on their investment, and there absolutely is. Uh, Nancy, before we let you go, there's lots of consultation regarding the updated legislation regarding uh, peoples with disabilities, access and whatnot. Give us an idea of some of the improvements that have been entailed or enshrined in that legislation. Well, what we have with accessibility legislation is what we call enabling legislation. So with the legislation that, uh, you know, was, uh, was, was created and, and uh, uh, announced on December 3rd, uh, we actually have legislation that will enable other legislation to be created or uh, enable existing legislation to be changed to, ena- to, to be sure that we have accessibility. So with the, ex- the legislation that we have right now, we don't see any immediate changes. What we see through that is an opportunity for buildings like the public, you know, like the public gallery in the House of Assembly and all public buildings, government, government as well as general public businesses and such. There's an opportunity now. We will, it's necessary that laws will be made to change the, the inaccessibility that we're facing right now. Um, there will be those, those will depend on standards to be developed and regulations to be developed. And again, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm putting a call to government here publicly, and, and we've been doing it behind the scenes, that we really need to get that work started. There was um, a standards advisory board to be created, and it was announced uh, on that day in December. And we don't know yet what the status of that board is. Um, I've asked several times and have not gotten an answer as to where we are with that board being uh, identified and publicly announced so that, that those standards, those recommendations to the minister could could start. Uh, we, we just don't know. And so we really need our government to step up and say and, and put the put action in there. You know, these, these are things that can be done, that will be done. We have laws to ensure this happens now, but we're still not seeing movement on it. Um, I, I know that the general public is feeling this need. We get contacted by businesses, by general, by persons, you know, just in, in everyday lives who are saying, I can't believe that this is not happening, that this is still happening today. And businesses that want to make change and are coming to us and asking, how do we do this? What do we need to do? Um, you know, it, it's huge. And you're right. That 25% of the population is a huge number. So when you are in a business, you put factor that to the bottom line. If you are providing barriers in your space, in your business, to that 25% of the population, think about the return on that. The expending power of people with disabilities is enormous. If I'm going to open a business, I don't want to say that it's only open to 75% of the population. The other 25% can find somewhere else to go. It's it's really a uh, it's a new day, and and we're looking, we're really looking to make change in this in this community in this province. I appreciate making time for the show, Nancy. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patty. Take good care.
You too. Okay, bye-bye. That's Nancy Reed. She's the executive director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. I clicked the wrong button. What do you know? All right, very quick. Someone asked me on Twitter if I would be able to get someone from Toro, the new ride-sharing application that's going to launch in this province uh, May 17th, and the insurance company that they deal with called Economical Insurance. We're trying to get both, just to understand how it works. But curiously, but predictably, you know, they're, again, Twitter is whatever. So... VOCM posted a new story with the announcement. And the reaction is just, I'll never understand how people react to some of these things. Going haywire saying governments, government are idiots and stuff, and government may indeed be a collection of some idiots. But, again, it's like when there's a concert announcement. If you don't like the band, you don't have to go. If you don't like the thought of uh, sharing or renting out your vehicle, you don't have to. And this was, in large part, driven by hospitality in Newfoundland and Labrador. If it means that some people will not uh, cancel their booking because they couldn't get a rental car, then that not that a good thing? But boy, people just went haywire. How stunned is everybody? Well, I mean, some people might, and you know, not everyone has a car lying around, but in a two-car family where the summer hits and you might be able to get away with using one or your teacher or whatever, some people might do it. I mean, they have over 400,000 vehicles that are part of the ride-sharing application already. None of this problem yet because it hasn't opened. It won't until the 17th of May. All right, today's a good day to get on the program to talk about whatever you like. 273-521 if you're in the St. John's metro region and toll-free long distance it's 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back weekday mornings from 5:30 to 9 jumpstart your day with jerry lynn Mackey and ben murphy newsmakers traffic weather and more during your vocm morning show welcome back to the program well a couple of people who they send emails about the same topics uh, every day, and fair enough, openlineofvocm.com, send it on. And apparently it was about my obsession with COVID, even though the mention of COVID uh, in the preamble today was minimal, maybe less than a minute. But the whole the concept of testing with this new breathalyzer, and what's it called? Let's see, I've got the story right here. It's called Inspector COVID-19 Breathalyzer. So it's been approved by the U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and it's being looked at here in this country. There's also scientists from uh, Waterloo, Ontario, developing a saliva test on paper. So it's going to be no swabs required. You blow into a straw for some 10 seconds, enough to fill up a small balloon. They can detect the chemical presence or signature of the virus. The only reason I mention it is because it's the same type of conversation associated with access to a rapid antigen test. Some people just want to know because they may indeed change their behavior if indeed they test positive. The accuracy, given the prevalence of uh, COVID, in the province means the rapid tests are pretty effective. There is the possibility for false positives and or negatives. That's true. It absolutely is. But some people just want to know their status so that they can adjust or modify their behavior, whether it be to separate themselves in the house from the family and be a bit more careful, whether it be, you know, staying home from work. And you don't have to feel terrible to have the virus and the potential to spread it. So any advancements in the testing, given the fact, and I don't know what the future holds, but given the fact we're told, you know, learning to quote-unquote live with the virus and people wanting to proceed back into some normal events and circumstances and behaviors and habits that they've had in the past. So anywhere where we can find a place to identify whether or not the individual may indeed be a carrier and or things like wastewater testing to understand the prevalence, get a heads up as to what might be happening in the community, which is the general role of public health to begin 
with on an annual basis, not just COVID. Same thing they do with seasonal flu and other diseases or viruses that may indeed be in the community. This has been the role of public health for a long time. Increased focus on, of course, that Department of Government, given what we've all endured here in the last couple, three years. So the only reason I mention it is because it's something new that might be part of the testing regime here. It is unfortunate that there remains to be a lot of confusion about even the most fundamental things here, like access to Paxlovid. So when the minister says it's being distributed to the pharmacist, the, uh, the pharmacist association says, no, it's not. A community pharmacist sent me an email and said they've got no direction as to what's going on here and access to this oral antiviral treatment. So, you know, a little bit more clearer communication goes a long way to tempering people's emotions. Because when we're all confused as to what might be next, then we find ourselves in this perpetual state of frustration and anger, anxiety, worry, whatever the label is that's appropriate for you. So that's the only reason I brought it up. I'm not obsessed with any of it. There's so many big issues that we're trying to navigate here that just just happens to be one. And it has a ripple effect across a variety of things that we actually talk about. So fair ball. If you want to change the topic, all you have to do is call with whatever you want to discuss because that's how the show works. So... Again, and then there's, uh, of course, reaction to any news stories associated with the oil and gas industry. It's not going away tomorrow. We know it to be true. It remains to be seen how the negotiations will proceed with Equinor, of course, the majority stakeholder in the Beta Nord project. And that comes on a variety of fronts, whether it be about the amount of jobs and the work to be done here in the province versus elsewhere in the, co- in the world. And that's long been a concern, and it's a real one, a completely legitimate one. Finally, the sanction will be sometime, I would imagine, in the relatively near future, relative near future. I am curious, and I wish I had some inside baseball information about how the conversation looks and sounds between the province, the federal government, and potentially Equinor regarding the additional hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties that are going to have to be paid to the United Nations based on the the uh, convention of the law, convention of the law of the sea, or whatever it's actually called, unclose. That's a big one. They've got five years to figure it out, but until it's figured out, does that mean that it pushes potential sanction down the road? And yes, there's a segment of the population that thinks there should never be another drop of oil produced because people have different opinions based on different concerns that they share. So I don't know what's going to happen with Beta Nord, but I would really like to know what is going on with that royalty conversation. The province, I think, has taken the appropriate stance, even though I saw one professor up along refer to it as petty, given the fact that the federal government signed on to that agreement, not the province. And so it sounds like a provincial responsibility to me. The province should not have to play an active role. Will there be some sort of compromise? Very likely. But it's another real stern test of the Atlantic Accord, because the royalties are to flow to the province. The end. And so if there's got to be some compromise, what does that mean for the veracity of the Atlantic Accord? Certainly an important document signed back in 1982. So we'll see what becomes of it because that's going to be a big one. I mean, just look at where we are financially. Hundreds of millions of dollars less is a massive impact as we're trying to get back on some more stable footing. And remember, the province and the provincial government is talking about being back to balanced budgets and surpluses. What is it, by 2026? The actual roadmap to get us there? Not quite fully understood. Well, at least not by me. Anyway, let's check it out on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But my favorite is when you join us live on the air and you can pick up the phone to do exactly that during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Travis, you're on the air. 
Good day, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? I'm well. Um, I've got a few thoughts on the war in Ukraine that I share with you and your listeners. Go ahead. Uh, you know, that whole war is about one man, from my point of view. It's Vladimir Putin. Um, and he's a bully. And they have to stand up to the bully. I'm talking about the Western powers. Like, this threat about it could be a nuclear exchange. Well, that comes from him. Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. And the only NATO countries that do, Britain, France, and America, they're not going to use those weapons. So it's Putin's thing, and I don't understand why the Western countries don't stand up more to him. Like, why does he get to say, you can't send fighter jets to your Ukraine? Well, he gets to say whatever he wants to say. The issue is as to whether or not the those who know much more about it than I do is uh, whether or not any further intervention, militarily speaking, by countries other than Ukraine, even though we have intensified the war in Putin's mind simply with the provision of humanitarian aid and some military weaponry. But what would the risk be of escalating this war beyond the borders of Ukraine? I guess that's the measure that's being considered as to whether or not anybody else is going to do anything else. But, you know, NATO soldiers aren't going in there. And why can't we help our ally, Ukraine? by giving him these weapons. Uh, I don't see that as an escalation. Now, that's from my point of view. But can't we help our, our, our friend who, who's in trouble? Uh, like, to me, you, uh, Russia invading, invading Ukraine is not much different than America invading Canada, to put it in, you know, in that kind of light, you know? Uh, well, except that we're friendlies and they're not. Um, so, like, help they how? They were friendly. They were friendly. Ukraine and Russia are very similar. A lot of them speak the same language. Uh, there's millions of Ukrainians living in Russia. Um, but it's the so, furthest thing from friendly, and it certainly hasn't been anywhere near that since 2014, at least. Well, because of Russia's actions. Right. Ukraine was never a threat to Russia. No, no, no. This is imperialism. This is this is land grab. This is access to different ports, the Black Sea and otherwise. This is trying to restore the former, quote-unquote, glory of the Soviet Union, in part. So when you say help, help how? Like flying sorties into Ukraine to target Russian soldiers or just giving them the jets that they've been asking for? Like, what do you mean by help? Give them the jets they're asking for. And give them the tanks they're asking for. It doesn't have to be, uh, they've got pilots, give them the jets, let them fly the, pilot, uh, the, the planes, and uh, you know, give them what they need. It's a democracy being dismantled, destroyed, and if, if we don't give Ukraine what they need and let Putin carve up uh, Europe uh, and create his own little countries, well, um, I, I don't know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a lot worse, I think. Uh, I think it'd be better off if we give Ukraine what they need to defend themselves as opposed to uh, bowing down to Vladimir Putin, uh, who's threatening us with nuclear weapons. I don't think he's going to do that. 
Well, it's hard to know what someone like Vladimir Putin may or may not do. I think that makes it a really murky, confusing situation. I mean, one step outside the borders of Ukraine, I think that unfortunately we'll find ourselves in a massive war in Europe. But, you know, for instance, let's just say the additional help that you think is required is provided. And we're not necessarily talking about nuclear warheads that would be Hiroshima and Nagasaki and destroying entire cities. He does indeed have a a certain number of small tactical nuclear war, nuclear missiles that could possibly be used. I don't know if anyone could say he will or he won't with any clear, uh, defined yes or no to that question. I don't know what, what, to, what to do about all of this. And it looks just like a, it's a humanitarian crisis. And certainly there's lots of comments about uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes that are being committed right in front of our very eyes and the uh, civilians who have been obviously uh, attacked unprovoked by Russian forces. So I don't know where the so-called off-ramp is. I don't know how this ends. But I think everybody in the community of intelligence and actual experts in the field think an escalation beyond Ukraine is the absolute worst-case scenario, and it's possible. So I don't know what to do. And I'll also freely admit, I've limited my intake of a lot of the war issue in Ukraine. It's just a bit much. It's really hard on the head. There's already so many overwhelming uh, issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. I keep an eye on it, but I'm not devoted to it all day long like some people that I know are and they've known every single move and every single decision or utterance coming from Zelensky or Putin or others I try to just take it in in small bite-sized morsels because that's all I can handle I agree with you on that 100% I've stopped watching it and I've seen enough of the images Um, you know I, I can't look at that every day but we shouldn't forget that it's happening. Oh, no, I don't forget. No, absolutely not. Of course not. But, but uh, you know, as far as Canada goes, uh, America, England, France, the democracies should stand up when a democratic country is invaded by a dictatorship like that. And uh, because if we don't and we let, I'm talking we, the democracies of the world, if they can walk over to Ukraine, what's next? And, uh, you know, it's, then you embolden other countries. Yeah, I, I completely understand that thought. But, of course, then it would take a completely 180 approach from what is a defensive lines, that is NATO, because it's never been its mandate to be an offensive group. You know, it's not a show of power unless the, whole, the so-called Article 5 is invoked, which is an attack on one, is an attack on all. It would be either a unilateral decision made by, for instance, the Americans or the Germans or the British or whoever, as opposed to until uh, NATO countries attack, then there will be no direct military intervention beyond the provision of you know, some of the anti-tank stuff and uh, other armaments that have been provided by various countries, including Canada. But uh, Travis, I wish I knew where this landed and how it ends, but at this moment, I really don't know. It might be a bit too complicated for my brain. Uh, well, me as well, but uh, like I say, most people are hurting over there in a big way. Uh, of course they are. And, you know, whatever we could do to support them, uh, we should. Uh, number one thing that Canada can do is to accept uh, people who are fleeing the country and bring them here. Well, that's ongoing. I mean, they've even waived all the upfront paperwork and protocols until they actually arrive in the country. So that's an ongoing humanitarian mission that is being, by the sound of it, executed fairly 
efficiently. You know, it's also fascinating that the province, the only province in the country, has sent the team over to Poland. They're set up in Warsaw to either attract or to help in the the transition or the travel of Ukrainians who may indeed think that, you know, they want to live somewhere else, maybe short-term, long-term, who knows what. And also on that front, which I never knew until this all started, the third largest concentration of Ukrainians or folks of Ukrainian descent in this world is Canada. I had no idea. So other than Russia and Ukraine, Canada's number three. So it might be an attractive option, given that there's many people of the same descent that actually currently live in this country and in this province. So it'll take a little while to see exactly how that unfolds and the numbers associated with. But that's actually happening, and I think that's probably a very good thing. Uh, would you like to say anything else about it this morning, Travis? Uh, no, we're getting back to that. Cause, like, Canada certainly has the capacity to help uh, Ukraine in that respect. Um, we're not a military power. There's not too much we can do, uh, except you know what we can. But to to invite those people to this country and give them a place to live where bombs aren't dropping on their heads, you know. And uh, so but I, I'm all for that. Let's invite them here. Appreciate the time and the call. I'm, I'm interested to hear that the Newfoundland sent a contingent over there. I, I never knew that. Yeah, a team of four. They set up shop in Warsaw. Uh, few four weeks ago maybe and exactly what that's doing and the numbers of people that have gone through that particular office and are on their way here I don't know be curious if there's a number available from the minister responsible which would be uh, Jerry Byrne that's something I can chase a little bit uh, I appreciate the time this morning thanks for the call Travis you know problem and all Newfoundlanders should be proud of sending that contingent over there to help those people out thanks for this I am. You too. Bye-bye. And, you know, there's been a real keen focus on defense spending in the last number of years. Some of it was the rattles coming from uh, the former president, you know, talking about funding NATO, which is not how, that's not how anything works. But, you know, it's the commitment that NATO countries have made to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. This country, we were at 1.4 in the most recent budget and additional monies to be spent. We're only still at 1.5. I do wonder how and why we or how we maybe should include cybersecurity as a matter of defense spending, because I think that actually does indeed protect the homeland, defend the country. You know, just think about it. We've seen pipelines hacked and compromised. What happens if it's electrical grids, water uh, delivery systems? Healthcare, like we've already seen in this province. So cybersecurity seems to be a bit of defense spending that is not currently factored in by NATO or other countries, but maybe it should be. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Your VOCM 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Danny, you're on the air. Yeah, Penny, how are you? Doing good, sir. You? I'm Mr. Preamble. Uh, you were talking about government something, paying back ceremony? Yeah. What's that about, sir? Well, there's a couple of different areas where it's impacted Canadians. So for folks who were applying for employment insurance when the CERB came out, they were automatically put on the CERB. So that was an additional income and, of course, taxable income. There's also, and this is a very specific email, but I'll, I'll read it to you because I think it just encapsulates what's happening. 
It says, hello, we are writing to you about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. In spring 2020, you received an initial SERB payment of $2,000. This was an advance payment of four weeks to get money to you as quickly as possible. The maximum amount you should have received is $500 a week during the full period you are eligible for the SERB. According to the information we have on file, including your reporting information, you were paid more benefits than the amount for which you were eligible. You will soon receive a notice of debt by mail detailing what you owe and providing instructions on how to make the payments if necessary. So this person technically got too much. Now they're going to have to pay the entirety of it back. That's the problem many people across the country are finding themselves in. Okay. All right. Which is a big one. I was, yeah, I'm one of those people that was on EI and ended up getting that money. Yep. But Every, I, everybody. I, excuse me. I didn't mean to cut you out, but I, I think I paid mine at 2000 back, Patty. You did? Yeah, I think so, yeah. In what form? So you actually just, when you filed your taxes, you put the additional $2,000 in as a payment, or how did you, or did you arrange a payment schedule? Oh, they detached me. When they, I, when I was receiving the CERB, when they figured out I, that they, I got the 2000 they took uh, $500 a week. They cut me for four weeks, 500 each time. So oh, okay. I, that's how they got me. All right. So I paid my back. There was one fellow who had sent this along. Actually, there's a couple of people who have sent me the same thing, but this person remains on employment insurance and has to pay back a $7,000 bill to the federal government and has absolutely no capacity to pay that money back. Also had the problem with, and you know this to be true, some people who got the CERB and it was taxable income, they didn't put away the taxable amount to pay when the, when the time came and CRA came looking for their money. So now they find themselves in arrears with CRA. And they're not going to let you go. They're going to get their money out of you, whether they garnish your wages or otherwise. So there's a lot of Canadians find themselves with a pretty whopping big tax bill this year and just can't pay it. So yeah. it's, a, it's a problem, massive problem. And I'm one of them. Yeah, you're not alone. Yeah, I got nailed with the taxes, right? Yeah, this one guy, I mean, he's on EI, and yeah. not exactly top stamps either, and he owes the federal government $7,000 this year. That's a big number. Yeah, it's not real, Petty. Like, they try to help you on one end, and they hinder you on the other. Yeah, there was a lack of the appropriate oversight and monitoring and controls over the CERB. It certainly helped a lot of Canadians keep their head above water, and that was very helpful. But then, you know, there was not every situation is equal, though, is it? So, for instance, say one of my young fellows working part-time and going to university. Their hours got cut, and one of, one of the boys lost their job for a, a couple of months at the beginning of all this, given the lack of business. And so they said, well, should I get the CERB? I said, well, boy, you know what? If you want to get a month's worth of it, make sure that you give me, you know, six or $700 so I can keep it and give it back to you for taxes. And he did exactly that. Uh, but at the exact same time, and this is not to besmirch anybody who was technically eligible and got the money, he was living at home. And I don't charge my son's rent or anything for groceries or nothing. And that $2,000 was more than he would have ever made working in the hours that he was getting. So he didn't really need it. And he sure. got it, and he paid the taxes back. But there's a lot of folks like th in that exact same situation. And then you add in the other factors that we've mentioned, you know, automatically on it versus on EI. It's complicated in a lot of folks' lives. And I'm sure there's a lot of stress and people fretting about filing their taxes, of which the deadline is Monday the 2nd of May. So, yeah, a lot of Canadians who really didn't need it, they got it anyway. So that's something that should have been part of the test, you know. Is it something you actually need? Because, like my son, he did not need it. 
He just didn't. And thankfully, he paid it all back. Uh, I appreciate this. Anything else you want to say, Danny? No, but like you're saying, Benny, you're a young fellow who was lucky, lucky to be living at home, but like $2,000 was not a lot of money, and a lot of people never had any money to put away. 100%. Right? Okay, sir, thanks a lot. Good to have you on, Danny. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, the folks that really needed it, and it might, you know, there's people out there earning way more than $2,000 a month that had their jobs shut down for X amount of time. And they might not have kept the wolf away from the door in full with the kind of bills that they had. You know, if you're used to making 80 grand, then you kind of spend your lifestyle around the 80 grand. And yeah, there are certainly Canadians, including my son, who he could have gotten away with not having uh, a month's worth of part-time hours being worked because his bills were bare bones. So anyway, you want to talk about the implications of your own individual situation regarding the CERB and what it means for your tax season? We're happy to talk about it. Uh, maybe if you've gone through it and you know how difficult it was to set up a payment plan or what have you, maybe we can ease the worried mind of some folks out there who don't know if they're going to be able to manage that, because that is available. CRA wants their money, but they also understand blood and turnip, right? All right, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Director of Fund Development at the Canadian Heart and Hearing Association, NL. That's Terry Martin. Hi, Terry. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Patty. Good morning, and uh, thanks for taking the call. And uh, another busy and great show and very informative. You do a, a great service to the province, my friend. You really do. Thanks a lot, Terry. But, uh, no, I, I just wanted to uh, uh, just remind people that midnight tonight is the last chance to uh, to buy your tickets on the Million Dollar Lottery, and it's milliondollarlottery.ca. And, uh, of course, the grand prize is a million dollars cash. And, uh, you know, uh, that's going to be deadline is tonight. So get together with your friends, family. you got anyone who you want to buy gifts for. It'll just – a million dollars will change anyone's life, I suspect. It would change mine. I can tell you that. I'd pay off all my bills and I'd get a custard cone. <laughs> yeah, that would be a nice custard cone, but maybe you could buy two and share it with someone. Exactly right. How are, the, how are the sales going, Terry? Because, you know, some charities have made out very, very well throughout these uh, tricky times. Some struggling a bit. How about you guys? Well, you know, I mean, this one here, uh, we're not where we want it to be, i got to be honest. But, uh, you know, uh, it is a new lottery for us. I mean, we've always been doing springtime lotteries anyway for the last 26 years. But, you know, we, after last year's 50-50 that we had on our dream home, and we, of course, went over a million dollars, people, we got a lot of calls. People said, like, a million-dollar lottery would probably be a good idea. So we put it together. Uh, it is a new product, and, you know, we're just hoping that uh, we get enough support so we can continue to do so. Yeah, I hope you do, too, because the work and the programs and services at the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association impact an awful lot of people here in the province. So how much are the tickets? The tickets are $100 each, and, uh, and uh, you can get them at uh, milliondollarlottery.ca, or you can purchase, and we have a local call center. It's uh, 1-844-240-2946. Hopefully you get a, a last-minute rush on tickets because you're right, the $100 might be a dear sum for many, but uh, you can't win if you don't play. Well, and that's just it. And like you say, you know, we're, we have a lot of people that are, you know, their family members getting together, and, you know, they're just they're buying tickets together, and that's exactly what it's all about because, you know, it is a million dollars, so, you know, the ticket price had to go up to that for obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, there's still lots of ways you can get them. So, uh, you know, we encourage people to do so. And let's make this an annual event. And so far, so good. Appreciate this, uh, Terry. Once again, good luck with it. Hopefully it's a mad rush on the website and or the phone lines today. Yeah, and I appreciate your time. And, and, uh, and I know this will help. And, and thank you for all that you do. And uh, great job. Thanks. You too, Terry. Stay in touch. 
All right, my friend. Okay, Take care. Bye. Martin, Director of Fund Development at the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association. All right, so, yeah, go get yourself a ticket. And a good idea, you know, a group of 10, 10 spot each, 100 grand each, if you are so lucky. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking long-term care. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. He's the opposition house leader. as Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How are you? Oh, good, thanks. Patty, I'm just calling in to follow up on uh, an issue that uh, was in the media in the last couple of days, and I've spoken about it several times already. It's the long-term care uh, facilities out in uh, Gander and Grand Falls. Mm-hmm. And uh, new delay, I guess. It's uh, it's kind of frustrating for all involved, and I know that uh, I've, reached, I've heard from a lot of people that have been affected, a lot of seniors as well, and my colleagues have been advocating for this for a while. But, Patty, I think it's what's most frustrating and what drew me to react the way I reacted to this. I mean, March 28th, there was a ribbon cutting out there, and all fair and dandy. I mean, I had no problem with that. I said I was glad to actually see that it was finally opening and it was completed after much delays and thousands of efficiencies. It was like long overdue, and everyone seemed to be happy about it. But to find out a month later that we're a month out because there's issues that's wrong, and the showers issues, the hot water in the shower, floor showers are not level, which is quite a danger for seniors, obviously. But that was in the original 4,000 deficiencies that I had tabled in the House Assembly last year. So, I mean, when you have your uh, ribbon cutting on March 28, I mean, where I come from, I mean, all that stuff should have been done, signed off, sealed, done, you know, everything should have been in perfect working order, get ready to, you know, fill it up with equipment, and, and obviously residents. So I'm at a loss, and that's what spurred me on. Like I said, this is terrible. It's not good enough for seniors. I mean, I've talked to many of them, and they've reached out to social media and that to me as well. They're frustrated. They're, I mean, we're hearing about the health care crisis in, in Central. has been well documented as well. People in the hallways, people can't get in the hospital, people are discharged, waiting to win these homes. These homes are staff in limbo. So what's the plan? Is it, you know, it got to be more in the photo op. It got to be like that's fun, Dandy. I get that. That's, that's politics. We all do it. But there got to be these. It's not fair to the people, and that's what the frustrating part of this is. It's not fair to the people that are waiting, and you don't get no answers. You don't get no messaging from government. They don't provide no details to anybody, media included. So you're left to wonder well, what's going on here. So, so this come back down to the management of these peaches. That me, my own myself, and you have spoke about this many times. Is that the problem? Are we not managing these properly? Uh, should these things not be happening, like in the in the you know degree when you had thousands of deficiencies out there in the central? I'm at a loss, Patty, and I think that most of the people out there, and most namely the seniors and the families of people waiting to get in these homes, are at a loss. So this goes on, like I mean, politics aside, not, that's not fair to them people. And I just, I mean, I just want to raise the issue and and try you know try to get some answers. And I'll be totally frank with you, the, 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 those seniors are feeling the same way. No one is, and families are frustrated because no one are answering their questions. And here we go again, at least a month, as you know, it could be longer. I'd like to know a little bit more detail about how we arrived at 4,000 deficiencies. So did we have uh, an absence of inspections at the rough-in stage? Did we have just straight-up incompetence? Uh, what actually went on here? What did government know and when did they know it? All of these things factor into all of the delays that we've seen. So whether it's a result or the root cause is P3, I have no idea. But until we get answers to some of those questions about who knew what when 
and what happened on the inspection process. I'd also like to know if there's any financial liabilities being carried by the construction companies, because there's obviously, or the inspectors, because government is responsible at the end of the day, given our vote and it's their public policy. But it'd be nice to know exactly what went on and who's paying the piper here. And this is just not good enough. I'll add one more uh, issue to the mix here. We know there are people in hospital right now that are medically able to be discharged, being charged, I think it's about $40 a day to stay in the hospital while they wait for a bed in one of those two homes. That is patently unfair. It's not their fault. They have nothing to do with the deficiencies, whether it be in the floors and the showers or water systems or whatever. We should waive that fee right now. Totally agree, Patty. I think it's outrageous. Actually, I heard a snippet of that this morning and uh, couldn't agree with you more. Again, it comes back to treating treating our seniors fairly. And as we know, we get an aging population. I think it's outrageous. And to your point on the project management, then, I mean, I, I think it's cold comfort on those buildings for those seniors that were waiting to get in there. What kind of building, what, you know, what quality infrastructure are they actually get into if you don't dig down and look into what actually happened? And it's no good to go on when you've got a project manager and you're building a building that after it's built to go check the studs when you've got to rip down the walls, check the studs. You know what I'm saying? This stuff should be checked. As every piece is done, you get electrical inspection, you get a plumbing inspection, you get, you know, roof. Everything has to be inspected or overseen. So this, none of this makes sense. So I couldn't agree with you more. But at the end of the day, $120 million is the fee. That's public money. That's my money, your money. So, you know, we're paying that. So government can say it's not costing nothing extra, but this is cost in excess of $100 million, let, let alone the other big projects that we're going to drive well over a billion. And, I mean, if this is the way we're going to manage in our big projects, our P, you know, these so-called P3s, I, I, I think it gives cold comfort to a lot of the public out there. And uh, I think it's, it's a great concern. And, and at the end of the day, as, as you've said, I mean, we're supposed to be saying uh, seniors are suffering, and it's not good enough. They deserve much better than this. Yeah, I'd really like to know a bit more about the origin of these deficiencies, the hows and the whys, because it's one thing to send me a release that says there's been thousands of deficiencies, not really much in the way of why, <laughs> which I think is a pretty important question regardless of what we're talking about, and the financial implications I think are, are very real, both for the constructors, the government, and of course the folks who are waiting for placement in one of those beds. I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Barry Patton. He's the MHA for Conception Bay South, Opposition House Leader. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Grant. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How's it going? Great today, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking there, brother. Um, I'm just calling about these, uh, the only word I can use are shameless attack ads by, uh, I think it's the Sierra Club or something on the Bay, the Nord Project. Yep. I've uh, I've been hearing them on. I've only been listening since they came on. I only listen to you on BOCM anymore. I just refuse to listen to the, the station unless you're on. But uh, the first one that they had out there was I don't know Sally or some missus talking about her uncle couldn't get work in the oil up west or something, and why is he coming home to go on the Bay to Nord project when it's only a few years work or whatever. He should be working in the renewable energy sector or whatever. So that one was a little bit silly enough. But I noticed this morning now, listening to your program, they've uh, upped the rhetoric there. And uh, now they're, I don't know, going to trying to make people feel guilty uh, for even going to work or having any involvement in the project. We're going to be responsible for burning down communities. And, like, uh, I think it's a, a little bit uh, hyperbolic there. Don't you think here? Like, it's shameless, Patty, in my opinion. 
Well, I don't think anybody should be surprised. Uh, this has long been their position. We had their representative uh, in the province on the show while the decision was pending, and she was very reasonable. Uh, but this has long been the mantra and the mandate of the Sierra Club. So none of this shocks me whatsoever. And I hesitate to play the old both sides uh, conversation. But, you know, we also have a bit of exaggeration coming out. You know, we hear about green oil and all that kind of stuff, which is uh, hyperbolic as well. But, yeah, I'm not surprised when they bought ad space to uh, talk about that. It's, they've been very consistent about their opposition of the fossil fuel industry for as long as I can remember. It's actually how I was first introduced to Bruno Marcocchio. Uh, there was a news release from the Sierra Club, and this regarding Muskrat Falls, and some legalities associated with it. And uh, we responded and said we'd like to have the lawyer on who's making this position, and they sent us Bruno. So that's how I was introduced to Bruno as well as a representative of the Sierra Club. But I'm not surprised. But what I would say to folks out there who are supporters of the industry or working in the industry, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt, and hopefully it doesn't make people feel bad or embarrassed to do what they're doing, to try to earn a living, to try to pay their bills, and to to, uh, to deal with their own family-related matters. So, you know, I guess we'll take both sides with a grain of salt, but it isn't what you think about the issue. You know, I think factually speaking in it, like you're saying, because of the Bay Denor project, Canada is not going to meet its emissions targets and get to net zero and stuff. Yeah. Like, that's totally unfactually true, you know, that one... Um, one project is is not going to cause Canada not to meet our emissions, our 2030 emissions target. You know, like, I don't know, I think it's just gone a little bit far there with, with trying to attack now the people. Patty, it's is a lot of people are going to work on that and we agree that we need to cut back emissions and stuff but it's a job like there will be no other choice we, we can't say no i can't go and make a living for even a couple of years to pay my family you know why should someone try to be shamed because you went and you went and done something like that like you talk about the green energy jobs i'm curious here now because we all work in construction pipe fitters me and my buddies and we're talking and we're like like, where are these jobs too like if they were available i I don't know any renewable energy green sector jobs anywhere in this province anyway that's available for us to go and attempt to get employed with yeah, that's a good question, you know, uh, I, and I'm happy to ask it, but here's where there could be some opportunities. For instance, even when we talk about offshore oil, the electrification of the oil-producing platforms is going to be a job for somebody. There was a think tank uh, group, I can't remember what they're called now, in Toronto, uh, before the last budget federally, talking about, you know, if you want to have a job associated with reducing greenhouse emissions, there could be... Tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars spent on public infrastructure, and the Infrastructure Bank might be a great home for this, to do things like, and it won't happen here, high-speed rail. There's big jobs there, and it would be reducing emissions. Also, retrofitting public buildings to use alternative forms of energy. There's a job there, and I'm sure, like most Canadians, they don't really have the option to pick and choose whether or not it's an ethical quote unquote ethical job to take people need no, to exactly. work so if I'm a yeah. pipe fitter and I can just say this for myself and I'll get your reaction if I'm a pipe fitter I don't care if I'm fitting a pipe for geothermal versus diesel I'm working I'm just doing something this is what I'm trained to do so I don't know if it's the fuel source that I'm concerned about I'm concerned about the paycheck and I don't want anyone to shame me into doing what I have to do to support my family so I get that point 
yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, Patty. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure 80, 90 percent of us, if we had the opportunity, if the geothermal plate was there, we had the choice. Yes, we would. You know, we understand what's going on. No yep. one wants to be. Everyone wants to do their part. Like me this year, I took out my oil furnace. Cost me 20 grand. I went and put in an electric furnace. You know what I mean? Cost me $20,000, right, To with the new upgrade. Like, you know, everybody wants to try to do their part. So, like, I, I, until the option is there, until these jobs are there, like, I don't feel that it's right that anyone should be made feel guilty that they're going to work and, and trying to provide for their family. You know, it's just, I don't know. I just as shameless is the word I can use here. Listening to the newest one now and referencing the Baden Ord to communities being burned down if you go to work on this project, like... I don't know. I just think it's getting a little bit much here now, to be honest with you. Like, seriously, I, I don't think because that oil rig goes out there that it's going to cause communities around the world to burn down. Like, seriously, don't you like, isn't that a little bit hyperbolic, don't you think? <laughs> well, it's, it's language chosen on purpose, right? You know, like most uh, groups, they will use language to their end goal benefit. And whether it's hyperbolic or exaggerated, unfair or shameful, whatever, people can label it whatever they see fit. But I'm not surprised with any of it, to be honest with you. And no. hopefully folks won't take it to heart and feel like all of a sudden they're a bad person because they need a job and the consequent paycheck. But I appreciate your time. You know, and, and curiously, there's not one single proposal in front of the Federal Impact Assessment Agency for any further oil development. Not one. Not one. Not offshore Newfoundland, not anywhere on land right across the country. So I just throw that out there for context because that is interesting. It's the first time, uh, I think, in 25 years there hasn't been a, a, some sort of oil project looking for approval, either provincially or federally. Not one. So uh, that's just kind of a strange piece of business. Grant, I appreciate you making time for the show. Awesome, Patty. Nice talking to you, bro. You too, pal. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, isn't that something? Now, we heard from uh, Federal Minister Guibo about the stiffening of the parameters associated with an oil-related or an oil and gas-related project being put in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. You don't have to be a gifted reader to read between those lines. He says the bar is going to be very high, which means it's going to be really, 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 really tough. And even Bay Nord and Equinor, they've got some 137 mitigation measures included in their proposal out on the Flemish Pass. So, curious stuff, but not one single project in front of that agency today. None. Interesting. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Trevor. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I'm a first-time uh, caller, a long-time listener. Terrific. Um, Paddy, I'd like to speak about a little bit about... Um, Today is the, the National Day of Mourning, you know, to uh, to commemorate people who have uh, who have died as a result of workplace injuries or have or died as, as a result of uh, workplace illness. Uh, I'd like to speak for a moment on the, um, the way it's affecting first responders in the province. Uh, the Workers' Compensation Commission uh, currently, uh, I guess most people are familiar with it if they if they've been involved at all. Uh, they'll know that it, the compensation, compensation rate sorry, is at a maximum of uh, 85% of a maximum of $64,500, I believe it is, which basically works out to a maximum payout of uh, just over $54,000 annually for somebody who has been injured on the, on the job. 
Uh, I'm a first responder, Patty. I've been a first responder uh, all my career, and uh, in the last two years I've been off um, with an injury, with a workplace injury. Um, through that, I've come to, to learn quite a bit about the system. And uh, one thing that really popped out to, uh, to me was that if, um, if an employee of basically any other occupation besides a first responder is injured while performing rescue work in an effort to save human life, they are compensated at 100% of their pre-injury earnings. There is no 85% uh, calculation done on that, nor is there a cap on the amount they'll be compensated based upon. So if you are an employee, say, for example, and you're making $200,000 annually, and uh, while you're on the job, you, I don't know, you come across uh, a motor vehicle collision and you, you offer assistance to people and you break your leg or twist your ankle, uh, you'll be compensated your full $200,000. Your family does not have to suffer, you know, uh, any loss of income whatsoever. Firefighters, uh, police officers, EMS, and so on, uh, they, they take the reduction. So uh, I know in my case, uh, you know, my job would normally pay close to 100000 a year. Uh, but as a result of the injury, I'm knocked back to probably around 40000 a year, which is significant. Uh, it's, it's life-changing, Patty, quite frankly. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, just remind me of the category that does not, does not see a cap or any reduction. Who exactly was that? That's everybody else, everybody who is not an emergency responder. So, for example, if you were to leave, if you were, say, out on the road with VOCM and you, you encounter, uh, I don't know, a house on fire and you, you try to go in to rescue these people and you get injured, uh, you'll be compensated 100% of your pre-existing, I'm sorry, of your pre-injury earnings. What do you think is the rationale behind that? Is that as fundamental as uh, frontline first responders are much more likely to be injured, possibly, and so consequently there might be much more compensation dollars paid out? Is there something as fundamental as that in your mind? Yeah, well, Patty, I really don't know, and I'd like to have an answer to that, to be honest with you. I've worked in the, as, a, as a first responder now for about 25 years, uh, and I've had some time as a young person uh, working in other occupations, of course, right? Uh, but as a first responder, I, I can certainly see that uh, that it is a, a more hazard. It's an ultra-hazardous hazard sort of activity to engage in and to begin with. And, and I really don't get the rationale for why there is such a difference. Uh, firefighters and first responders like police, EMS, I mean, our bones break the same as anybody else. Just because you've been trained and received you know, an education in uh, in rescue work and, you know, if you, if you go down over the bank on a highway, for example, and you twist an ankle, just because you're a trained first responder doesn't make you any less susceptible to that injury. In fact, you're, you're probably more, more susceptible because you're exposed to it more regularly than, than other occupations. Does PTSD qualify as an injury on the job? It does, yeah. yeah. And for years it did not, Patty. It's only in recent years that, that they've actually adopted that, and I believe it was the Kathy Dunderdale uh, government a few years back that uh, finally got that pushed through, and that was through a, a great deal of advocacy on behalf of uh, first responders. But, uh, you know, people do recognize that, that the work that first responders do is is different you know it's, it's a little bit different than it's a good bit different actually than than what most other uh, trades and other professions do uh, 
for example, like the federal government actually has a what's called a memorial grant for first responders. Uh, and that is, Patty, to recognize that if a person was to, to die in the line of duty or if they were to pass away as a result of an occupational illness, their family would be uh, eligible to receive a, a lump sum tax-free payment of uh, $300,000 from the federal government. So any first responder who uh, was listening today, they could certainly get on the website. It's uh, memorialgrant.ca, and uh, you can kind of read about that and make your family aware that that is available to you. So, I mean, different levels of government, they will recognize the, the nature of the work that first responders do. Uh, but it seems like we've fallen a little bit short or have fallen a lot short when it comes to the uh, Workers' Compensation Commission. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had a statutory review where they, uh, where they kind of review their policies. And at that time, I was uh, trying to make a, make, make a, a point with them, uh, you know, regarding this cap and regarding the, uh, the 85% calculation. And uh, it didn't seem really to go anywhere. I contacted our MHA in here, uh, Barry Petten. He, uh, he agreed that, uh, that first responders, you know, should be treated uh, the same as everybody else, basically, when it comes to an injury that you would incur while performing rescue work. But... Uh, he really hasn't done anything to uh, to help make that change, you know. Yeah, and add to the long-running concerns of paramedics about the hours of work and the rate of pay, the disparity between public and private offerings or services. So there's a lot to it, you know. They've made some mini amalgamations of air and ground ambulance under the one authority for dispatch, what have you. But that that, that doesn't deal with the, the on-the-ground concerns. Add to it the complications with red alerts when you have paramedics that are just waiting to offload a patient to the control and authority of someone at an emergency room or what have you. So the issues are wide and varied and very problematic and have been lasting and going on for a long time. This is not new. Trevor, I'll give you the last word, sir, before I move on. Yeah, I appreciate you taking my call, Patty. Uh, and again, uh, you know, at this, on, on this occasion, you know, it's a time to remember those who have lost their lives and those who are suffering workplace illnesses. And, uh, you know, I'd like for any politicians that might be listening and anybody who uh, has some influence with the Workers' Compensation Commission, to please review this, give, uh, give you know, reconsider what's been being done with uh, with injured first responders, particularly, and and certainly all workers in the province. A hundred percent. Appreciate Good. you taking my call, Patty. I appreciate making time, Trevor. Stay in touch. All right, we'll do. God okay. bless. Okay. Bye bye. Here we go. Uh, important topic right there. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking mackerel, food delivery, and Murray Roberts. He's the president of the Botwood Kinsman. We'll see what Murray has to say after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to Ryan Clary from CNL. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call, sir. Happy to do it. Patty, I'm calling uh, a couple of things I want to talk about in the fishery this morning, if you don't mind. Um, and the first topic is competition in the fishery and a news release that CNL issued earlier this week. So during the federal budget that was released earlier this month, Patty, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a review of the Federal Competition Act. Now, for the information of your listeners, but I think that you're already aware of what I'm going to say, the one industry that's actually excluded from the Federal Competition Act is the Newfoundland and Labrador fishery, more specifically fish pricing. There's actually a section in the Federal Competition Act, Section 4, that excludes fish price negotiations uh, and the inshore fleet and the inshore fleet from our perspective pays the price for that exclusion in terms of less money for their fish 
it was just last year, Patty, that the big reset, uh, as you recall, the, the, the premier's economic, uh, the report of the premier's economic recovery team, it pointed out that the structure of fish price, fish price negotiations in this province, with the FFAW going head to head with the Association of Seafood Producers, is anti-competitive by nature. So we have a, a situation in this province right now, Patty, where Newfoundland and Labrador processors can import snow crab for example, from the Maritimes and Quebec for processing at local plants. And there are reports that that truckloads of snow crab are being brought into our plants, while those same processors and the Association of Seafood Producers, they can order the inshore fleet tied to the wharf on trip limits or told not to go to sea at all to catch their snow crab. So, so at the, and, and then at the same time, you've got the inshore fleet can't access... Uh, outside buyers. So the question we ask is, how is that fair in in terms of competition? And the answer is, it's obviously not. Fish prices paid to our owner operators, you've heard this many times, Patty, Mm -hmm. are often much less than the prices paid uh, across the Gulf, and it's more than just workers' comp or EI. Owner operators in this province often complain they can't move freely between buyers and processors. You've heard that too. And processing companies have been accused of working together as a cartel to keep fish uh, to keep the price of fish down to uh, to our inshore fleet. So. I wrote a letter to the Prime Minister earlier this week, or uh, I haven't sent it yet. I'm in the process of sending it out. And we're asking the Prime Minister where this review of the Federal Competition Act is ongoing to include fish price negotiations in the Act. No industry in this country should be excluded from the Competition Act, certainly not the Newfoundland and Labrador fishery. I don't know why it would be the way it is, but how would a national pricing structure look? Because the market pressure is market pressure. What the market can bear is what the market can bear, regardless of who sets the price. So what would it mean insofar as setting the price of one species or another? Uh, you just uh, The first part of your question there is how would the national pricing system work? Well, I, I'm not talking about a national pricing pricing system i'm, I'm talking about fair oh. competition oh I, I, well, I know but of course it would come with a pricing scheme because purchases purchasing comes with some sort of do- attached dollar amount so that's that's how i came up with that thought in my head uh, whether it made well, sense newfoundland or not. And, in newfoundland and labrador unlike other maritime provinces or quebec we have a panel system of fish pricing yeah. as you know so if the FFAW and the uh, ASP can't come to an agreement on a price, it goes to the panel. The panel sets the price. In other provinces, it's you're paid at the wharf. Like in Nova Scotia, for example, it's the wharf price. So all we want here, in the end, we want a fair price to the inshore fleet. That's not happening with the panel system of fish pricing, and it's certainly not hap- it can't happen when you have uh, fish price negotiations excluded from the Federal Competition Act. So again, all, all we're looking for is to have, well, actually, it's not all we're looking for, it's a big ask, but we want fish price negotiations in the act covered under a fair competition. Fair enough. Uh, there's been a lot, and I think this may be a bit of a tangent too, but I'm going to throw it out there. You know, when we talk about the ability for producers to import product from outside Newfoundland and Labrador harvesters to deal with in their plants, and then the thought is, well, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. Why can't I sell my product very freely wherever I want to sell it? At the same time, knowing that maybe inside that same household with the harvester would be a fish plant worker. So there seems to be a little bit of a contradiction. Some of this comes with trying to serve two masters, uh, as the current FFAW is. But 
what's the right approach for the harvester, given that the harvester still does re rely on the processor for the obvious reasons? So how does it work today, and how should it work, in your opinion? Well, boy, I tell you, I mentioned the big reset a few minutes ago yep. where uh, the, the Premier had this report, uh, um, um, economic recovery team report uh, done. The economic recovery uh, report, the first thing they mentioned under fishery was the fact that the fish price negotiation process in this province is anti-competitive. Then they brought up an old idea of, a, of a, uh, an auction system for fish prices so that you get the best price in terms of the freshness of your product, in, t in terms of the best price uh, the market is willing to pay for it. Uh, it's happening in other jurisdictions. The big reset pointed to that. I don't know if the provincial government has uh, taken the recommendations, taken that particular recommendation uh, from the big reset report uh, and, done, and, and given, given any thought to it. They certainly haven't acted on it. Uh, but it, it, it is an issue, and the door is open right now because, as I said, the, the Prime Minister has said there's a review of the Act. The, the other thing that I want to just mention, Patty, is mackerel. Now, you and your listeners have heard that uh, Canada declared a moratorium on mackerel just a little while ago. Um, uh, so they, they closed the East Coast mackerel fishery uh, at the end of March. Uh, and then at the same time, they shut it down. They shut down the, the spring fishing for, for herring in the southern Gulf. But while the Canadian mackerel fishery is closed, and this is what gets me, Patty, uh, the United States continues fishing the same migratory mackerel stock with an, with an almost 5,000-ton mackerel quota this year alone. From my perspective, Patty, this is the first thing I thought when they shut down the, the, the mackerel fishery Canada did and left it open in the States, is that's the same as shutting down the commercial salmon fishery while Greenland continued fishing the same migratory salmon stock for years or closing down, in another example, the northern cod fishery when foreign fleets continued fishing out uh, northern cod outside the 200-mile limit. It, it makes no difference. A, a lot of these decisions that are coming down by the feds um, they're, they're not getting a whole lot of um, uh, attention or, or, or focus, and they make zero sense. The final point about mackerel, Patty, is the fact that a lot of fishermen came to me right after the mackerel fishery was closed because DFO has what's called a national online licensing system. You go online and you pay for your licenses. But as soon as the mackerel moratorium was announced, they took the mackerel licenses off Knowles, the national uh, online licensing system. And uh, I can tell you, Patty, our inshore fleet is not happy one, one bit about that. The mackerel license represents a major investment, thousands of dollars, not just for the license, but in terms of the fishing enterprise and gear, and owner-operators want to keep their licenses, even if it's just for the privilege of not fishing. Simply put, Patty, they don't trust DFO to get the licenses back. So what we're saying is macro fishery is closed. Fair enough. But allow fishermen uh, to register for their macro licenses, to pay their fees if they have to. They want to know that the macro licenses will be there when the fishery reopens. And, and again, simply put, they just don't trust DFO. That, tr that level of mistrust, I think, is as old as time immemorial. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. I'm off to the news. Um, Patty, thank you for your time. Anytime. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, appreciate the patience of those who remain in the queue. We'll get to you right after this newscast. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number one. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Yeah, um, 
I have terminal cancer, so I thought my son's go, who's been here taking care of me is going home for a month. So I thought, you know, ordering one of these, uh, we'd try out one of these order services, which would be good for me when I can't get food. So I, we, we went and used one of these services to deliver from a restaurant. And the order came, and it was missing. Like, say you ordered ribs and fries. The fries weren't there. Or another part of the meal was also missing. And I mean, you pay at least $20 more to go through these companies, right? The product actually arrived two minutes early, so it wasn't late. So we went online and immediately filled out their... I don't say the driver got to the end of the street before we had the, the thing filled out saying this was missing. The food was ice cold, wasn't even hot, and they just sent back a response saying, you don't qualify for a refund and gave me a contract, which you'd need a lawyer to read, talking about third party, second party, blah, blah, blah. And it never mentioned anything about missing items or anything like that, just all this legal jarndra. Uh, and I contacted the restaurant, and they said, look, they're inundated with complaints. And I talked to a few friends who have used the services, and they said when they first came out, they were really good. Like if you were missing an item or something, you'd get your refund for those missing items. But now they ain't giving you nothing, right? So, like, whoever heard of ordering a product and part of the product is missing and you're not compensated for it, you still pay for it. Like, is there anybody who regulates these companies? To that extent, I don't know, to be honest with you, if there's some sort of commitment to ensuring the accuracy of orders or what, where yeah. to turn for it. Because, you know, and another thing on that front is there's a lot of money that doesn't go to the restaurant that goes to the order service. So there's a couple of reasons why people reconsider how they order the food. But I don't know where to point you for any further controls. No, I'm going to go back to if I can get into the restaurant to get it, I'm going to get it because that leaves more of the money with the local owner, not with these companies that are just taking advantage. But, like, if I order from a pair of shoes online off Amazon or and the product goes missing, they'll replace it. Sure. These guys, I just get this thing saying, you don't qualify. Well... What could qualify, like, okay, the cold food may, I don't know how they have an excuse for that, but maybe they could get around that. But items not there? I never heard of not being replaced anywhere. It's wonder the restaurant didn't attend to it themselves. Yeah, I talked to the restaurant, and he said it's a nightmare. They're getting calls lately. You know, in the last year when it first started, it was okay. But they're inundated with complaints. But they actually have no contact with these companies. It's done through a computer system. That company actually makes the orders, right? Yep. They only fill in what's in that order that that company puts in. Yeah, they just picked up a bag. You're right. Yeah, and he he said that's why you're going to start seeing more and more of these restaurants start getting out of these services. Well, if it's not working for them, it hurts. Their, it damages their reputation because you yeah. may indeed hold it against one of the food delivery services, but you ultimately will hold it against the restaurant. So it's bad for their business. Yeah, and you know, the, oh, the owner, he 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 was like totally understood. He said, "Look, it's been a nightmare. 
right? But it's out of their control, right? They, they can't do anything, right? But anyways, that's it. The, the other thing I want to mention is like well, all this environmental stuff, I won't be around to see it. But I did see a program about car batteries, these new batteries that are coming in the cars. And it, it's all great, improves the environment, but apparently the blueprint to make the batteries is not too environmentally friendly. And the batteries last for up to 10 years and they're very expensive to replace. And we're in 10, 20 years time when we got all the electric cars and all these batteries wearing out, where do they go? There's lots of repurposing. Is there a plan? I hope there's a plan to replace these batteries, and they don't become the next environmental hazard. They repurpose a lot of the components of electric car batteries. What, just because it's unable to power a really massively heavy vehicle doesn't mean it can't be used to store uh, all, all sorts of alternative so, uh, pardon me, forms of power, wind and yeah. solar in particular. There is lots of research that goes into the repurposing of lithium-ion batteries, and that's just one, or that's just two areas. Yeah, it's what we need to get into anyway. Same with wind power. Newfoundland, not with wind power, my God. We got the wind, right? We got the wind. That we do. I still don't know how it's going to work necessarily, though. You know, if you find... Even if it offsets a bit. If it offsets what? Pardon me. You know, like offsets the use of oil and other products a little bit. Like, it's just another alternative, right? Oh, it's just another one of the components. You're right. It's not a one thing and one thing only, like electric vehicles all of a sudden has cured the entire problem. That's not true. It's like most big issues that we try to grapple with. It's going to be a variety of things, individual behavior, corporate behavior, government policy, yeah. electric vehicles, wind power, solar. It's, it's everything. You're right. 100%. Yeah, you've got to have everything and, and combine it, including you need that oil backup. I mean, I think Europe is paying the price now with Russia holding back on their gas, their oil, you know, that you need other alternatives. You need backup plans, right? That goes for all of us, right? You absolutely do. Uh, Kevin, I uh, I wish you well, sir. Uh, And with your diagnosis, and it must be a traumatic time for you and your family and your son who's been taking care of you, but hopefully these companies pay a little bit more attention to detail when they're trying to, you know, someone's placing an order with their hard-earned money and they show up short, whether it be fries or anything else. It's frustrating as all get out, especially when no one's there to do anything for you. I appreciate your time. I, I wish you nothing but the best, Kevin. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Good morning to the president of the Botwood Kinsman. That's Murray Roberts. Hiya, Murray. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing great. How about you? Good, boy. Uh, Patty, I'd like to call in this morning uh, to pay a little tribute to uh, a gentleman who had passed away this week. His uh, name was Denny Dillard, and he was the chartered member of the president, chartered president of the Kinsman Club of Botwood. As uh, a young man at 27 or 28 years old, again, he, he uh, chartered, uh, you know, he chartered the uh, Bartlett Kingsman Club, and, and in a couple of years, we'll be celebrating 50 years of Kingsman in Bartlett. And I guess without his vision to see that the organization of volunteers of good character and good conduct that serves the community's greatest needs as their motto, uh, he's seen that as an important thing to come to Bartlett, and in Batwood, we've uh, you know donated millions of dollars to the local uh, to the local uh, uh, charities and to the local community, and uh, you know many uh, things in our community is named after and supported by the kinsmen and throughout uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, and Canada. That's uh, that's done all 
uh, nationwide and he is the one that brought it to our community so I'd like to pass along our condolences to uh, the family on behalf of not only our kids and club but also all kids and clubs in the province uh, to, to a great man who brought that organization to our community. People need these types of champions, there's no doubt. Do the kinsmen focus in on specific things that they raise money for, donations that they make? Well, Patty, they have some national projects that they do. We were, you know, the Kinsman Club has donated uh, somewhere in the vicinity of $50 million to the cystic fibrosis nationwide. Uh, multiple cirrhosis is a, is a huge project of the Kinsman Club that's an annual project of all King Clubs in the country. So we do that nationally, but, but locally then we reach out and, you know, we support the... Uh, the building of the uh, playgrounds, we support medical uh, requests. We, we, you know, they support uh, many many types of things like that, and they they reach out for the greatest, uh, you know, the greatest needs within the community. They are strong supporters of things like the food banks and the, uh, you know, the status of women. Central major donation done project now in our area is a zone project going ahead to support the Lionel Kellen Hospice. Uh, so, you know, there's a wide variety of, of, of ways and means that the, that the Kinsmen and Kinnett Clubs and the Kin Clubs donate money to the community. Yeah, good stuff. You know, these, so these service organizations have long done yeoman's work for the community, and if it wasn't for them and other volunteers, individuals or organizations, the government will never be able to pick up the slack that these groups like yours uh, take on in the community itself. Uh, Murray, quickly before we uh, move off to the break, how was your hockey season? Oh, the hockey season's pretty good, boys. Uh, you know, a bit different now. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, you know, for me, it's a, a back a little bit for the, uh, for the, in the, in the rink type thing, but uh, an opportunity to watch the, you know, to watch the kids, great to see the kids get back after the pandemic and, uh, you know, to get to see some, uh, uh, see some hockey and there's a lot of tournaments. There you go, so the, a tournament here last week, a couple of tournaments actually that were pretty exciting and great for the kids and great good to see to get back, right? So, uh, Patty, just before we go, I'd like to mention sure. one other thing about uh, Ken Denny, and I'd like, just like to say that, you know, he was a, he was not only just a, a kinsman here in Bawa, but after he moved out of Bawa, he started kin, kinsman clubs in Goose Bay, he started the kinsman clubs in Gander, and he went on to uh, serve as a national director on the and the King Canada executive, and he was there at the same time that, here's a name you'll remember, uh, Len Sims was the national president of the Kingsman Club, uh, former MHA and cabinet minister of the government, and uh, he, was the, he was the national president, then he was on his team. So he was, uh, you know, he went on to serve on the national level as well, right? So, I mean, he, he had a, certainly a great passion for our organization, and, uh, and, and he done well in it. And just one other quick mention, he was also in the Masons and a, uh, and a potentate, I think is the word for the uh, OS office held in the Shriners, and he held that as well. So remarkable service. Yeah, remarkable contribution. Uh, so our condolences to his friends, his family, and his fellow kinsmen and members of the Shriners, I, I suppose. Very good to have you on the show. Thank you for your time, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Murray Roberts, president of the Botwood Kinsmen. Murray himself, great volunteer, hockey, kins, up and down the line. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Catherine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. What's on your mind this morning, Catherine? Uh, I'm finding it very difficult to drive at night because the headlights of the cars are absolutely blinding. Some of them absolutely are. Uh, you know what? I've, my, light, my headlights are very bright as well. Now I bought this truck used. 
which I'm soon going to have to deal with. Uh, but I find the exact same thing. And there's a lot of vehicles out there that have got like the fog lights on with their driving lights. So it's a big wall of very bright light coming at you. Most of it are the new LEDs, right? It used to be that the halogen headlights, you know, the, the old tungsten filament. Uh, they were fairly bright, but these LEDs are unbelievable. Yeah. Is there any kind of limit on like how, how bright they can get? Or? Mm, I, not that I know of. Uh, there might be some regulations surrounding the brightness of headlights, but I wouldn't know what it is, to be honest. Yeah, and and when it's raining out too, it gets worse because there's glare on the road, and it's like, uh, I don't know, it feels like you got to kind of put blinders on and look straight ahead, because if you look at an oncoming uh, headlight, you'll be blinded. Yeah, well, I mean, there's also people using their high beams that, for some reason, just don't know what to be at when clipping them down. So I just had a very quick Google here. Is there a limit to how bright your headlights can be? Federal limits, federal limits are orders of magnitude higher and a different measurement altogether. Depending on the lighting system of the vehicle, headlights are limited to about 20,000 or 75,000 candela, which is the measure of brightness, and that's according to the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard number 108. So there you go. Apparently there is a limit. Okay, well, I don't think they're making anything safer. I think they're going to cause an accident. Well, it might be safer for the person driving the bright-lit headlight vehicle, but not for everyone else. I think that's probably a fair statement too, Catherine. Yeah, all right. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, she's not wrong. There are some extraordinarily bright lights out there, but then I guess it's akin to the conversation around how loud a vehicle might be. You know, there's a decibel level uh, uh, threshold that you're not supposed to clear. And we don't do a whole lot to measure it and to ensure that some of these really obnoxiously loud aftermarket systems are being dealt with in appropriate fashion. But same thing with the LEDs. Now, I don't even know if uh, any law enforcement agency has ever pulled over a vehicle to do a Candela assessment. I would not think so, anyway. But that's a curious question that maybe we can chase that a little bit, too. Dave, you want to play us out here with a little Super Tramp? All right, uh, good show today. Really appreciate the support the program gets. All of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.